Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Most Reverend Peter J. Elliott is Bishop Emeritus of Melbourne, Australia. He has a doctorate from the John Paul II Institute for Marriage and Family in Rome and has served as director of the John Paul II Institute for Marriage and Family in Melbourne. His new book is The Sexual Revolution, History, Ideology, Power. That is our topic today. Welcome, Bishop Elliott. Thank you, Mark. Let me ask you this. Why is a retired Catholic bishop writing about the sexual revolution? A lot of people are asking that question. Uh, it goes back to the John Paul Institute in Rome where I did my doctorate, and we examined some of these problems there. Um, for example, we had a two-day seminar on transsexualism, and that's more than 20 years ago. Hmm. But uh, when I worked in the Council for the Family, problems would come up there in the Vatican. And then when I became a director of the Institute in Melbourne, I used to give lectures as part of a course that other people gave on the history of the church teaching on sexuality, and that threw up all the problems. So I've turned those lectures into the basis of this book. You open by saying that in order to understand what is happening right now, we really need to go back in time, uh, well beyond even the mid-20th century explosion of new sexual mores. Is the Enlightenment where we should begin? Well, I would say you can go back to the 17th century in some ways, um, even the rise of Puritanism in Protestant churches and Jansenism in our own fold, very rigid approach. That had a, a backfiring effect or reactionary effect. It led to the very loose morals at the court of Versailles and the French kings, except for Louis XVI, who was a saintly man and lost his head. But that was building up even then in the 16th, 17th century. But it really became an ideological force for sexual behavior under the French Revolution. And a lot of people don't realize that's when in France uh, same-sex relationships were decriminalized under the revolution. But more seriously, on a broader front, civil divorce came in, in a very easy form of divorce. So they dumped the church's view of marriage and her doctrine of marriage. And that ricocheted into the 19th century. You have various key figures that paved the way for the sexual revolution. 
some of them inspired by the French Revolution ideology, others innocent, like uh, Parson Bentham in England, who became very concerned about the rising population because he looked into the cities in the late 18th century that were teeming with people that emigrated to work in the factories, uh, and he therefore proposed that population had to be reduced, and his somewhat alarmist approach fared later into the population control movement, and that was um, people like John Stuart Mill and others um, pushed that idea of cropping population back. But Malthus never proposed immoral methods at all. Later on, the more rationalist, atheistical types in the 19th century said, yes, we use contraception, crude as it was then. And that rolls on right into the 20th century. So one of the keys to the revolution is the question of human fertility and the separation of love from life, which I think is a simple description of the inspired teaching of St. Paul VI in Humanae Vitae. How did Darwin alter sexual ideas and mores? I don't believe Darwin intended to alter them, but you have disciples of his who translated his theory of evolution into how society should develop among people and also how people should behave. Now, once you say, and this is a crude way of putting it, that human beings are just clever monkeys, that throws open the possibility that they may evolve as clever monkeys into a new morality and change it. And that flexibility of morality came in there as a key moment, inspired by Darwin in one sense, but put into practice by what we call the neo-Darwinians, who are essential to the development of the sexual revolution. Hmm. Uh you mentioned Freud, who gave us a fresh focus on sex, but that Ford, Freud himself actually warned against the kind of liberation that we saw in the 20th century. What did he fear sexual liberation would, would, would produce? I think he feared that people would focus on the libido, on human desire, or what we would call concupiscence and that it would feature too much because it's powerful, and it is powerful in human nature. And that's what he was concerned about. So you can't pin the revolution on Freud directly. But again, some of his disciples uh, reshaped the understanding of the human person as a um, being which is all mind. And you had the split between mind and body. Now, in classical Jewish Christian thought, soul and body and mind in there, a one person. But now we have the split and you become a body which is inhabited by a mind, like a spirit in you. And you can do what you like with your body. It becomes an instrument of your mind. And that's a key to the contemporary sexual revolution, which has turned sex into a game, a sport, something you do and you can set aside or adapt. Then you adapt it, you can change your sex. You get the whole range of possibilities once you split the body from the mind and soul. Bishop Elliot, you mention a few of Freud's disciples, and you call them sexologists. 
And I've heard that term. What is a sexologist? The, the basic meaning of a sexologist is an academic expert on human sexuality. And it's a perfectly justifiable term. The key figures there were Germans, largely. And the one I know best is Bloch, B-L-O-C-H. And they stepped aside from human beings and looked at them, or looked at us, as if we were something in a laboratory. So there you have the behavioural understanding of sexuality in some ways depersonalised. Now, Bloch was a, a man who kept classical morality. They weren't <coughs> advocating permissiveness, though some of them did inspire people to go down that path because sexuality was seen in this pseudo-scientific, if you want to put it that way, uh, perspective. Later on, that's the justification for the experimental sexologists in the United States in the 20th century. I, I didn't know that Pius XI felt the need to denounce sexual education way back in 1929. You go back to a document there. Well, well that's, uh, that, that shows you that the Pope, a very wonderful and very tough Pope, was aware of what was happening in the world, the influence from Germany and Scandinavia of radical ideas about sexuality and this obsession with what is called sex education. And he rejected that in our schools. He did advocate that a moral formation be given prudently. And all the popes have followed that clear, logical, prudent. You find that running through the teaching of John Paul II. So we don't ban education and sexuality, but we reshape it around the person and not the body functions. And that's very important. Again, you have the mind-body-soul-body body, uh, struggle, and that's, that explains a lot of what goes wrong. But if you keep them together, you can form young people, especially today, very well and very sensibly in a chaste, responsible and fertile sexuality. Bishop Elliot, here in the United States, sex education of all kinds has drifted down into the classrooms of eight and nine-year-olds. Is that happening in Australia? Not so much. Um, we have a lot of parent influence here, but... Uh, that would mainly be in Australia in the secular schools, the government schools or public schools or state schools. In our Catholic schools, there's a lot more restrained. And I wouldn't, I could say it's worse in some places where there are crazy people who want to introduce it into the kindergarten or preschool levels. But one of the problems that we encountered in our research in the Pontifical Council for the Family, when we were devising guidelines for parents in this area, which have been published, The Truth and Meaning of Human Sexuality, we found that there were warnings coming through. Don't give children premature sexual information because the little ones will distort it in their minds. For example, if you show pornography to a very small child or talk about sex that way, like some very unwise parents unfortunately do, you can instill in the child the idea that 
adult sexuality involves violence. And uh, they misinterpret it, and that can lead to very deep problems as that child becomes an adolescent and an adult. I, I find it crazy because for precisely that reason. You're handing children material that they have no equipment to understand. And so they're going to inevitably distort or, or you know, absorb things. Uh, and I, 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 again, I wonder about the motives of people who want to do this. Well, the motive is this atheistical drive to exalt sex and to make it a sport or a game. <clears throat> and it flows on into the gender ideology and practice. Can small children decide whether they're going to be a boy or a girl? And anyone with any rationality in any study of psychology or even psychiatry will say, no. But now we're being inundated by this fashion to change your sex. Oh, I mustn't use the word sex. It's gender now. And there's a whole ideology that developed first in New Zealand and the United States around Professor Money that yeah. says, oh, gender and sex are different. Uh, you're born with a biological sex. But then you decide what gender you will be. And this has led to so much confusion and suffering. Okay, I do know of some cases of people who have changed their gender in later life and have settled down. But I think they're not typical. There are more problems than this. And it's coming under scrutiny. You are ahead of us in the United States because the gender ideology is still dominant in Australia. It hasn't cracked yet. It cracked in the United States when the United Kingdom started to doubt it and the Tavistock Institute was shut down in London, which was advocating uh, hormonal and surgical treatment, if you might use the word, at an early age. Yeah. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Uh, what role or how does the, quote, rejection of God, as you put it, play into this? I mean, it, it really, you have to begin with the re rejection of God before any of this can go on, correct? Well, it doesn't go before and after. It runs through it. It's the modern secularist view that we are <coughs> basically animals because there's no God. Or if there is a God, this God is like the force in outer space. Our, our, doesn't care about us personally. It's, it's a loss of belief in the personal God who reveals how we are to live, a moral law and a spiritual law, and who loves us and is close to us. The Judeo-Christian God revealed in Jesus Christ supremely. And they just pushed that aside. And you notice that the modern atheists, many of whom are amateurs, make fun of religion and particularly 
make fun of our sexual morality. Would you call the sexual liberators a special form of atheism? What does that... Would you call the sexual liberators a special form of atheism? It's one manifestation of it. I see atheism more as a motive force. But people who behave as if there is no God will do what they like. Jean-Paul Sartre and the atheistical side of existentialism, they said that quite clearly. Right. Because there's no God, anything is possible. Right. And that runs through our society now more popularly than it ever did in the past. And the media often promote it. Do what you like, do what you will. You're not account- a God who says we are accountable to the Lord, that's the God they do not want. Inconvenient. Along with that rejection of God came about, in your words, a radical change in the nature of the human person. What that, change what change true, took yeah. place? What change was that? <coughs> well, the human person becomes this split creature, body and mind or soul, and uh, with no supernatural destiny or nature, that's, that's dumped, the soul in particular. And the human person then can manipulate the body, particularly when we enter the other foundation of the sex revolution, which is the destruction of procreation and falling back on reproduction rather than procreation, and they're quite different, and saying that, well, we can manipulate our fertility and seal it off, suppress it, cut it off, destroy it, adapt it. And that, of course, is the mentality that came through Margaret Sanger in the United States and the people in the early 20th century who promoted artificial contraception, birth control, and above all, the key to the success of the revolution, abortion. You refer to another phenomenon in the mid-20th century called porno power. What is porno power? The history of pornography is very interesting. It used to be reserved for, let us say, in France in the 18th century, for wealthy people as a sort of secret library, etc. You'd keep of dirty books. But it's developed across the centuries into a more popular entertainment form, I'm afraid. I may put it that way. And now by the by the mid-20th century, it had become a huge industry. At the criminal level, well protected, but even outside the criminal levels of society, promoted as a business. And now it's a money-making enterprise. You have the devaluation of human sexuation, sexuality, particularly the degradation of women is essential to the pornographic um, revolution. You might call it a big element in the whole sexual revolution. And pornography is something that the church has always opposed for reasons of ascetical purity, etc. But we get back to this degradation of the person, particularly the woman, through pornography. The problem is now it's not something you go down the street and buy in a sex shop, and they're another symptom of the revolution, of course, sex shops. It's something, well, you find it, you pick up your phone, and there it is. You get on the internet, there it is. That means a child of seven can get access to the most brutal and filthy pornography. 
and how the child processes that we fall back on that problem of gradual teaching in formation, which is tossed aside when you expose the child to lurid images, which the child will misinterpret and even regard with horror in the sense that it will destroy the capacity of life and love. This is a tough question, Bishop. How well do you think the church responded to the revolution? I think the church responded quite well. I wouldn't say the the church caved in. Some Christian groups did cave in to the sexual revolution, particularly liberal Protestants and some of the more liberal Protestant denominations, for example, in the United States. They've succumbed to it, LGBTIQ, etc., and we go on and on. But the Catholic Church officially never did, never surrendered to it. Though I do regret that in the working document for the Synod of Bishops on the Synods, um, there is, I believe, the, the, the terms LGBTIQ were used. Now, we have the problem in the church that we have to give the morality of Christ and the Ten Commandments alongside the pastoral suffering and needs of people who are largely victims of the sex revolution. And when you start to see people involved in it, whether that's the teenage boy around the corner, it's the girl up the road getting pregnant when she's 15, <clears throat> all this sort of thing happening, you're looking at victims. And if they can come to see that they're victims, then we can develop pastoral care. And that's why the guidelines from the Vatican run down two tracks. We do not accept any morality in favour of homosexual activity, acting as homosexual, but we do require, and the doctrine of the faith are very clear about that, good pastoral care for homosexuals, such as you find in the courage movement. How does a priest respond or handle uh, parents, a family that comes in, parents with a 12-year-old boy who says, I'm really a girl? What does a priest say? Well, the priest would, uh, I hope, say that this child, and we talk about a child, let's get that clear, needs counselling, guidance of a patient, long-term form. And that's what the church advises. If you look at the guidelines for how schools are to tackle this that came out last year from Rome. So I say the same thing applies to the priest. He should, the priest himself shouldn't get too involved in it. Priests are not sex counsellors. We're not educators in natural family planning. That is the apostolate of lay people and couples, but he can support the parents and direct them to places or persons who can help in this area. You bring up the question of the ultimate goal of sexual revolutionaries, and I, I often wonder what that is. I mean, they've already won so much. They've taken so much of our culture and, and the schools and the art world and the media, entertainment, Hollywood, Silicon Valley, what more do they want? What, why do they, you know, they still seem unsatisfied. What more do they want? Well, let's be clear here. 
The sexual revolution is the major component of a Marxist-inspired social revolution, which we describe as politically correctness and all that, but that is a veil around something which is more pernicious, and that is to reshape society in a, I won't say communist, that goes too far, but it comes from the same Marxist source, the neo-Marxism, want to call it, and that's the revolution of penetrating society, not a class warfare. And the great expert on this was Antonio Gramsci, Italian communist who died in the 1930s at the hands of the fascists. He's not a bad man. He was a good man. Morality for him was very conservative. But what he proposed was a revolution that penetrates all levels of society and turns them in the right direction, which we'd say is the wrong direction. Schools, universities, uh, corporations, trade unions, churches, all have to be penetrated and you have what was later called the long march through the institutions. And that's what's happening now. That's what we are observing. Now, it, the good side is that sets up a reaction, a reaction in the best sense. We're not reactionary. A positive reaction, hey, we can do better than that and we must be aware that this is happening and not be fooled. You don't have to be a conspiracy theorist, and I'm not, to believe that this is happening. It's measurable. It's visible. As you've just said, we see it in levels of society, uh, this uh, obsession with uh, sex as a, a, a sport or something you play with or something you change in terms of the gender stuff. And it does wield political power. The LGBTIQ is really rather sad because it's, I believe it's promoted homophobia by pushing its case too hard. We're inundated with Pride Month and the, the Mardi Gras in Sydney and all this stuff. We're inundated with, and that's setting up a reaction. Some of the reaction's good. People saying, hey, enough, leave us alone. We don't need this. Some of the reaction can be bad when people get very angry and become hateful. We don't want to see that. But I think when you get a sexual cause that pushes itself so hard, behind that is surely an insecurity. And that's uh, something that we need to be aware of. Yeah, we, we, can, we can wrap up uh, by turning to what you turn to in the end of the book. You find some signs of hope in our world. What are those signs? The signs of hope, I see them happening all around at least. Uh, certainly in religious circles, Judeo-Christian circles, where families become aware of this problem and they can shut the windows and lock the doors and that's part of the solution to keep bad things, bad people or people who seem to be bad from our point of view uh, out of the house and away from your children. Bad moral influence. Also controlling this keeping the pornography away and the um, very pernicious um, uh, paedophile, for example, networks that use people, try and get children, all that out of the house. But at the same time, you give a positive view of human sexuality and follow the guidelines of the church on this and use good courses like Teen Star. And parents can do a lot here, but they should not act alone. I argue that families need to work together. 
That was the lesson we learned from Phyllis Schlafly, surely. That families need to come together in defence of the family. And part of that is to stand with one another in solidarity. If they're opening a sex shop around the corner from your house, what do you do about it? You complain to the civic authorities and they probably, oh, no, no, they won't get into that. But if you get a group of families together to complain and they become vocal and get into the media and say, we don't want this near our children, just like we don't want paedophiles around a prison living near our parish school. This is, this is where parent power or family power and the resilient energies of the family, as St. John Paul would put it, come to the fore. And I believe we can achieve much, but we must be patient and wise here. And my book has been written to arm parents and families to deal with a sex revolution. So the last two chapters are full of hope. And I do have hope because there's... See, when you think about this, you get very depressed. And the first part of my book would depress any decent person. I know that. But the good news is that we can do a lot because God is with us. The Holy Spirit is guiding us. And we do have the moral truth. We didn't think it up. It comes from God, written to our nature, the natural law, and given to us in the ten words of God, the holy commandments. We have all that. We also have a beautiful understanding of the human person. And when people who are victims of the sexual revolution in different ways, i.g., for example, kids from dysfunctional families who fall into vice and etc., we offer them a deep and beautiful understanding of who we are. And they can recapture their dignity because they yearn for that. All human beings yearn. That's written to our nature. It's the yearning for God, actually. And we need to capture that quietly and gently, bring it to people who are suffering. And I go back to the expression, victims of the sex revolution. And I believe that applies very broadly. The book is The Sexual Revolution, History, Ideology, Power. Bishop Elliot, thank you for joining us. Thank you. God bless you all. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.